Well, good morning. It is a joy to be with you all this morning at Central Presbyterian. And as Chris said, uh, myself and my family are no stranger to this congregation. I've also known your pastor and his brother, uh, his wife and her sister uh, for many years. And so um, I want to thank you, first of all, for your generosity and your hospitality. There are many great churches in New York City, but when I think of Central, there's so many things one could say, but I think especially uh, generosity and hospitality and uh, the graciousness to the rest of the church in the city is profound here. And we at the seminary are beneficiaries of that. Our students come here for class on Thursday evenings and your staff is, uh, is always warm and welcoming and indeed uh, having class here is a sanctuary for our students in the city. If you give your attention to your bulletin, you'll find there the text, John 7, 37 to 39. I'll read this text, Jesus speaking these words at the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths on the last day of that feast. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given. Because Jesus was not yet glorified. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we thank you for these words. We pray now for your blessing upon them. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, on Saturday, October 2nd, 2021, there was a great party. The party was preceded by a lecture. The lecture was entitled, Ever Ancient, Ever New, Lessons from Augustine in a Time of Crisis. And after this lecture, guests made their way to a party at a historic club. And an evening unfolded, festive cocktails, hors d'oeuvres, and then a multi-course meal. Now perhaps at this point, you're being reminded what this party was. This was the 200th anniversary of Central Presbyterian Church. You don't have to pause here and say that if you did not know about this party, it was listed in the church newsletter. <laughs> so on behalf of the media team, this is a good reminder to read the church newsletter. It's open invitation, again, very generous of the church to offer an open invitation to anybody connected to Central to attend this wonderful celebration. And the lecture given by Eric Gregory, professor of religion and friend of Central Church at Princeton University, author of the book Politics and the Order of Love, an Augustinian ethic of democratic citizenship. What a noble title and a great book. Now, this particular party was uniquely refreshing. Those of us who had read the newsletter and had the blessing to attend remarked that it was so refreshing because it came 
at that unique place in time where the restrictions because of COVID had relaxed. So it was at that special moment in between the decline of regular COVID and the advent of Omicron. We blissfully did not know about Omicron yet. So many of us put on a tie for the first time in either two years or 20 years and had a wonderful time. And it was also special because it marked the work of God in the life of this congregation. A congregation which had its birth as a church plant to reach people in New York City. A congregation which had been renewed and restored. Once again, reaching people in New York City. A congregation that in the midst of COVID brought forth a beautiful sound of bells to the Upper East Side as a testimony to the life that springs forth from this place. And of course, after the beginning of festivities and the meals, there was a formal presentation celebrating what God had done, marking out also a way for the future. It was truly one of the best parties I've attended. So if you're here in 100 years, be sure to read the newsletter. And if you didn't know, Jason Harris was preaching the Sunday after. The party was on a Saturday night. Those of us who came to church that Sunday took note of who wasn't here. And uh, we can share that with you as well. Now, most people were still here. And Jason was here, once again, proclaiming the word for us. But can you imagine if at the end of this party, just before everyone left, someone took the microphone? Someone took the microphone and said, I am the source of everlasting joy. Someone took the microphone and said, I am the one who conquers death. I am the one who can place unending love in your heart. I am the one who can guarantee your future for eternity. And I will not only do it for you, I will do it for the whole world. Can you imagine the audacity of someone doing that? This is exactly what Jesus is doing in this particular passage at this particular festival, except for the party is even bigger, isn't it? This is a national festival for all of Israel. It's the culmination of their festivals. Like the celebration of Central's 200th anniversary, it occurs in around October or November. Scholars actually think there's a solid date for this celebration, that they can nail it down. And what did it commemorate? It's called the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tents, or the Feast of Tabernacles. And it's a celebration that remembered that after God miraculously delivered his people from the bonds of slavery underneath Pharaoh in Egypt, they dwelt with his miraculous provision for 40 years in the wilderness. They dwelt in tents, in tents, or in booths. And God also dwelt among them in a very special tent called the tabernacle, hence the Feast of Tabernacles, commemorating the tabernacles of the people and how God tabernacled with them in the wilderness. And the ceremony of this feast itself 
is important to understand the importance of Jesus' words. Listen to how one popular devotional describes this feast and I think captures it with a helpful economy. So I'm going to read it for you. During the time of the feast, each Israelite family was supposed to construct a booth or sukkah and live in it for a week. These booths were small, temporary shelters with thatched roofs of palm fronds and other plants. And according to one interpretation, they were decorated with different kinds of fruit that grew in Palestine. Later generations obeyed the command to rejoice with fruit and foliage by having men carry an etrog or citron and a lubab in joyful processions. A citron is a citrus fruit native to the Middle East that looks something like a large lemon. And a lulav is a, is a branch of palm with two myrtle branches bound to one side of it and three willow branches to the other. Furthermore, in keeping with Sukkot's purpose to remember the wilderness journey, later Israelites added a water-pouring ceremony to recall those occasions when the Lord gave Israel water in the desert. The officiating priest would draw water from the pool of Siloam and pour it into the basin near the altar of the temple. And we read here that Jesus is speaking on the last day of the feast, the great day. Now there's some debate as to whether or not this is the seventh day, the last day of the ceremony, or whether or not this is the eighth day in which there was it was commanded to have a large gathering and celebration when the ceremonies had concluded. Either way, the point of significance remains. On the seventh day of this feast, there would be a procession. And on the seventh day, unlike the previous days, the priests would actually walk around seven times before pouring this water out the basin of the temple. So when Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me, he is making a universal declaration and invitation. He is making a declaration about himself that he is the one in whom the fullness of God dwells. This is how John began his gospel. That he is the one who brings the satisfying presence of God that the temple and that this ceremony and this festival only pointed toward. He's calling us to himself as the one who can quench our thirst. And he's making a declaration about us as well, that we are designed for fellowship with him. And apart with him, we will be thirsty. And of course, there's the invitation. I love the title of this series. It's such an ingenious title. I never would have thought of titling a series like this, if anyone, any one. It's an open, generous invitation, but it's also a universal declaration that whatever else divides us and how we distinguish ourselves as people, things that we can celebrate, those are all good. But there is something that unites us. It's a common need for this relationship with Jesus Christ to quench our thirst. Now, at this point, you may say, I don't feel thirsty. I was reading a German theologian recently, Eberhard Jungel, and Jungel made the, the bold point that 
People don't need God to get along. That struck me as an American because we tend to lag behind Europe in, in many ways. And of course, many things are happening now in Europe that are different than when, when Jungle was writing it, sort of the height of the of more secular period. But as much as we talk about human flourishing, isn't it also true that plenty of humans seem to be flourishing, and you may be one of them, without any sense of needing God? That's what he was getting at. But to that, I would say this. Remember that you and I, we don't always recognize clearly what is happening to ourselves, do we? Let me give you some rather cute and unscientific examples, perhaps even unpersuasive, but they're examples nonetheless. I was recently sick, also celebrating the new freedoms we have with uh, COVID restrictions being lost. I I drove my daughter, who's um, uh, president and coxswain of her crew team at Stuyvesant High School. I'm proud of my daughter, proud father moment, please allow me. So we went to a regatta in Boston, and I was the chaperone. And so I drove with a van with my wife, uh, students out there. Well, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's a four and a half hour drive. I don't recommend it. You should take the train unless you have five or six high school students with you. Then you can't do that. So we drove up, we drove back. And I have not been sick by, I'm so thankful, I didn't get sick all during COVID. And I didn't get COVID from that trip. But after, after six, after five, uh, well, 10 cumulative hours in the van, with high school students, I was sick for 48 hours with some sign of a stomach flu, perhaps food poisoning. But in the midst of this, uh, lying in the bed and being out of my uncharacteristic, uh, caffeinated, energetic state, as, as Chris had mentioned, um, my wife, Melody, comes in and she says, you are dehydrated. And I said, I'm not dehydrated. And she said, you are dehydrated. And I said, no, I'm not dehydrated, I'm fine. And with all the firmness of a floor nurse, she says, you are dehydrated. I have not seen you go to the bathroom in 18 hours. Sorry for the information, but that's, that was the diagnosis. <laughs> so I relented and drank the blue Gatorade she graciously brought me. Isn't blue always the best? The light blue, if you can find it, if you have to settle for the dark blue. I chugged down the blue Gatorade, and lo and behold, I was dehydrated yet unaware. Not a silly example, but it is an example. But it doesn't have to be just hard times that can make us unaware, or we can be unaware of. It can also be the, well, you're getting a lot of different uh, sound options there. Um, it can also be the good times that can lead us to be unaware, can it? Have you ever been so engaged in a conversation that you missed your exit or perhaps your subway stop? Have you ever been so involved in a project that you actually burned yourself out? or became physically sick, not because it was going poorly, but because you loved it so much. You just worked yourself to the bone. You see, we don't always know when we are thirsty, whether you're thriving or whether you're striving. You may say also, this sounds like a myth to me. I mean, Jesus is saying that he's going to quench our thirst. And I would say to you, yes, It is a myth, but it is also true. It's a myth in that it makes sense of everything in our lives, but it's also true in history. That he really did say these things, that he really did live and die and rise again, and that he really is alive through his spirit to quench your thirst this morning. And another bit about that. There's even some empirical evidence 
and a new field emerging called neurotheology. Now, the last thing you need this morning is a pastor talking about neuroscience. So I quote from others, but just to be aware, this is not a field from some backwater place, but at the center of our intellectual life. At the University of Pennsylvania, there's a researcher, physician, Andrew Newberg, who does scans of the brain to study the way the brain responds to spiritual activity. The texts that he's published are published by Columbia University Press. Now, you may have personal biases against Pennsylvania or Columbia, but you can't say they're poor institutions, can you? And the point is that the human brain and human beings appear to be hardwired for spiritual engagement. And the practice of spirituality impacts us in ways that we can actually measure. Now, believing in Jesus is ultimately a matter of faith. And I don't expect you to be persuaded by this illustration. But I do hope it shows you that believing in Jesus, though that is a matter of faith, is not opposed to reality, but actually comports with reality in a sensible, coherent way. So Jesus asks you this morning, he invites you, if you thirst, believe in him. And the Holy Spirit will unite you to him in such a way that streams of everlasting, life-giving water will flow from your soul forever. That is his invitation for us all. But even as we receive that invitation, the text has elements that suggest to us that we have a pervasive tendency not to know we are thirsty, and even worse yet, not to welcome Jesus as the one who will quench our thirst, and even worse than that, to profoundly oppose him. You were invited, whether you knew it or not, to Central's 200th anniversary celebration, but Jesus was not a welcome guest at his own festival here. At the beginning of John chapter 7, John tells us that Jesus did not wander in Judea because the Pharisees sought to kill him. And even during the Feast of Tabernacles, as Jesus was teaching, the Pharisees dispatched officers to arrest him. So this invitation of Jesus comes with great courage on the part of Jesus. It's one thing to make such a bold claim, but Jesus is putting himself right in the middle, not only of harm's way, but on a pathway to his own execution. He knows he's doing it. And the only thing, the only thing that prevents Jesus from being arrested at this moment in time were the power of his own words. Verse 45 of chapter 7 says, The officers, those dispatched to arrest Jesus, came to the chief priests and Pharisees. And the chief priests and Pharisees said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered back, Have you also been deceived? 
only by the power of his own words and the awe around him was Jesus protected at this particular moment. Such courage he marshals as an unwelcome guest, a foretaste, a foreshadowing, if you will, of the courage he will show to go to the cross to secure this new life for you and for me. But you see, it was not the officers who had been deceived, but it was the Pharisees themselves. They had placed their hope in religion, in their case, to quench their thirst and could not see Jesus as the living water when he was right before their very eyes. And I wonder what we place our hope in today to quench our thirst. What is keeping us from seeing Jesus this morning? As we consider the final elements of this text this morning, and we think about the courage Jesus showed, there's another hint here that we could easily miss, that the cross is in view. You'll notice in verse 39, there's a reference to the Holy Spirit, and that the Holy Spirit uh, is being referenced here prospectively, looking to a day when those who believe in Jesus would receive the Holy Spirit, would experience the reality that he's talking about here. Because the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. little clue we should set our eyes on this morning is this word glorified. The glory of God is spoken about a lot in John's Gospel. In fact, in the second chapter of John's Gospel, there's another party, not a national celebration, but a private party, more like the one that Central had, a wedding. And at this wedding, the wine runs out. And Jesus doesn't wish to be pressed into service, but he honors the request of his mother, and he turns water into wine. And John says, he manifested his glory. And up until this place in the Gospel of John, glory is always used in that positive sense, if you will. But this is the first place where we see a shift in the Gospel of John where the glory of God is still positive, but it's no longer directed simply of manifesting the power of God in general, the majesty of God in general, but it's specifically directed to the cross. Where John will speak of Jesus' glory and the glory of God being manifested in his crucifixion. And what does this mean this morning. It means that God's glory is seen not only in that he is willing to quench your thirst today, not only that he made you for relationship with him, not only that his glory is revealed in heaven and on earth, and there's this marvelous correspondence between what we discover about the earth and what we know to be true from God, because from his mind all things proceed. There is no opposition of truth. That which is researched ultimately comports with that which is revealed. All of that is true about the glory of God. But here, here, we see that God is glorified because Jesus receives your rejection of him and doesn't reject you in return. Because Jesus, instead of judging you for your rebellion against him, offers his life 
to be judged for you. So that Jesus can invite you. Why? Because Jesus loves you. And he loved you, as John will say in his gospel, to the very, very end. He was glorified so that you could believe in him and that your thirst would be quenched and your life would never be the same again.